What a blessing that was. Um, take your Bibles tonight and turn to Micah chapter 6, please. Micah chapter 6, I appreciate you being here. Of course, um, we miss those who are not here. And uh, due to Canaan Baptist Academy spring break and such things, ran into Nathan Key in the uh, foyer, and he just said that his family was at Disney World, as if like they were down the street at Kroger or something, no big deal. I grew up a million miles away from Disney World, so that's... Uh, pretty neat, but I appreciate you being here. Micah chapter 6. Brian Foote, have you gotten to Micah yet in your quarterly Bible reading? Wow, he's already done with the Old Testament pretty much. We're getting there. That's amazing, but I don't know. Remember, I don't know if you remember last time you were in the book of Micah, but that's where we will be tonight. Uh, it's a great joy to be able to preach tonight. I'm very thankful for it. Uh, thankful for our church, of course, for you and for what the Lord is doing here. The Lord certainly is up to something at Canaan Baptist Church, and as we have had opportunity to travel in evangelism, we've been in many different churches, of course, Baptist churches, of course, to do ministry. I'm telling you, we've got something wonderful happening here. And we have a, vis uh, a pastor, I believe, who has a clear conscience and has a clear vision from the New Testament about what Christ would want for us as his disciples and I'm just grateful to be a part of uh, the Canaan Baptist Church family. And so, don't underestimate what the Lord wants to do on a Wednesday night. We've seen, we've seen folks saved on a Wednesday night, and uh, we can see the Lord do a work in us tonight, and that's my prayer. And so I would pray that you would be expecting the same thing. So we're in Micah chapter 6. Before we stand up in and read uh, the text tonight, I just want to give some context to our passage first. And just to kind of give us an idea of where the passage is going tonight, I want you to think about the word authenticity or the word authentic and what it means to be authentic. You know, um, after college, I had the opportunity that God gave to go basically join the part-time staff of a, of a new church plant in Maryland. And so I had to, to work a job as well, and I got a job working as a bank teller. And so when I was a bank teller, I needed to keep a sharp eye out for authenticity, not only in currency, but in personal identification. What does it mean to be authentic before we move on here? Authenticity, what is that? Authenticity means conforming to, or, to an original to reproduce essential features. If essential features are not there, are not present, then let's just say the dollar or the identification is not authentic if there are some things missing from the dollar or the, the, um, the, the ID. So at that job, I had to make sure every dollar matched the original pattern. I had to make sure that every driver's license matched the original pattern of the original example given to us. And if we were ever unsure... <laughs> There was a book under the counter we could pull out and hold that ID or that currency next to just to confirm uh, we're not wrong. Actually, one day, it was a Tuesday. Tuesdays are the slowest days to work at a bank. And if you just walked in tonight, we're in Micah chapter 6. Tuesdays are the slowest days to work at a bank. And um, one afternoon, we had a gentleman walk through the doors, and he claimed that Bank of America had long lines and he could not wait. And so red flag number one, because most banks are slow on that day. And so he hands me two cards, a credit card and a driver's license. And he said that he wanted to make a cash advance. 
I don't know if you know what that is. So uh, he wanted to basically take cash out of a credit card, pretty much. And so I say, yes, sir. And my station was in the back. I took his, his ID and I took a good look at that driver's license. And I was so familiar with the real thing that I knew that there was something about this one that was not authentic. I mean, the man's picture was a little too goofy. You know how we all look terrible in our driver's license photos, except for my wife? And this man was like trying too hard. Like he was like jumping at the camera in a way. And the background was off. It wasn't like that typical medical mask blue. That's a new color. Medical mask blue. It was like a, it was like a, uh, like a, like a, like a greenish color. And I knew there's something that was not real, was not authentic, genuine, sincere about this man. Called my manager back. He got suspicious. He ran out the front doors. And so I got a star next to my name at work. Isn't that great? For stopping fraud. <laughs> you see, God gave commands to his people to help them be authentically godly. The most significant command God gave to his people was to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, and might, and strength. And right after that command, God says, in these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. You see, many of the following commands that God gave his people in the Old Testament were uh, then had to do with their conduct toward others. Jesus said that the next greatest commandment next to loving the Lord your God with all your heart is to love your neighbor as yourself. And so if God's commands were obeyed or disobeyed, it would have an effect on how God's people treated others. But apparently, in Micah chapter 2, we won't go there, in verses 1 through 11, many of the wealthy Israelites, as well as some of the preachers, or rather they were false prophets, were oppressing those Israelites who were less fortunate. If we were to go back to Micah chapter 2, the Bible says that his people, that God's people, were practicing evil. They were coveting the fields that belonged to the poor. That was pretty much all they had. All the little that they had there, those who were rich among God's people were taking advantage of the others. They were robbing others of the little they had. Their actions were wrong because their hearts were wrong. And what was taking place in Israel during this time was a display of God's people not conforming to God's pattern, not conforming to who God is, who was the original pattern set for them to follow. Here's what we need to see tonight. Our poor treatment of other people is a reflection that we are not delighting in the Lord. We are not loving the Lord. But when the word of God convicts us of our sin, the Lord's primary concern is not that we would simply do better. Believe it or not, when we sin, God's primary concern is not that we would simply straighten up and do better than we did before. That is not what God's primary concern is when he convicts us of our sin. 
The Lord's primary concern, rather, is a right heart. Authenticity. And this requires repentance. So I want to ask you this question tonight, church. How have you been responding to Holy Spirit conviction over your sin? How have you been responding to Holy Spirit conviction over your sin? You know, pastor's been preaching his heart out lately, and he does every time. (laughs) But he's been hitting a lot of serious issues lately, and he expects repentance, as he should. Well, last week, if you had any part of listening and being uh, under the ministry of the Vissers, the Lord presented some challenging and helpful things to us. How have you responded to any of the conviction that may have taken place in your heart in the last few weeks? Our theme for this year, Inside Out. I thank God for the emphasis on this Bible truth. And I'm excited about what the Lord is going to do in all of us through the emphasis of this truth that we are changed from the inside out. I'm thankful that we have a pastor who preaches and pushes for real Christianity, pushes for authenticity, not something manufactured, not something fake. So I wonder, how have you been responding to the Holy Spirit when he convicts you of your sin? I want to preach a message tonight entitled, What Doth the Lord Require of Thee? What doth the Lord require of thee? What does he want? What does he require of thee? I invite you to stand. And as we read the first nine verses of Micah chapter 6, this will give us a picture of what the Lord wants to speak to us about tonight. Micah chapter 6, verse 1. This is God speaking through the preacher directly to his people in Micah chapter 6. Hear ye now what the Lord saith. Arise, God says to his people, contend thou before the mountains and let the hills hear thy voice. Hear ye, O mountains, the Lord's controversy. And ye strong foundations of the earth, for the Lord hath a controversy, or he has a problem with his people, and he will plead with Israel. God says, O my people, what have I done unto thee? And wherein have I wearied thee? Testify against me. Go ahead. Tell me what I've done wrong to you. For I brought thee up out of the land of Egypt and redeemed thee out of the house of servants. And I sent before thee Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember now what Balak king of Moab consulted and what Balaam the son of Beor answered, uh, him from Shittim unto Gilgal, that ye may know the righteousness of of the Lord. God is trying to bring back to their memory what he intervened with or intervened in when other people, outsiders, tried to persecute them. He said, God's saying, I stopped them for you. I protected you from these people. And here's their response, those who are in sin. They're convicted of their sin, and here's how they respond. Wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God. 
Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a, of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? That's kind of drastic. The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul, or can we say the sin of my heart? And Micah responds in verse 8, He, God, hath showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. The Lord's voice crieth unto the city, or it cries unto God's people, cries unto God's people tonight. And the man of wisdom shall see thy name. Hear ye the rod, and who hath appointed it? What Micah's saying there, the wise man's going to listen to this message. And the wise man is going to repent. I wonder if there's a wise man or woman among us tonight who will respond to Holy Spirit conviction. You may be seated. Father, I ask that you would right now continue to do your work in me and through me so that thy people, so that we can all be helped for thy glory in the church. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. As we go into this passage and, and read Micah chapter 6, it's almost as if we're entering into a courtroom setting. And God is contending that he has ultimately been mistreated. Now, I said just a moment ago that God's people were mistreating one another. They were not treating one another appropriately or lovingly. But God, it seems here very clearly, is the one contending that he has been mistreated. In verses 1 through 5, we see that God addresses his people as both the plaintiff and the judge. God is bringing the issue, and God is going to call the shots. He is going to make the final decision, but he is he's also presenting himself as the one who has been offended, as the one who has been sinned against. And the earth, the actual earth itself, was witness to God's fair treatment of his people. God is both plaintiff and judge, and the surrounding earth on which the Israelites live are going to be a witness for God. And so I want us tonight to, to just imagine if, if the earth, if the hills, if the trees and the mountains and the waters could talk as witnesses for God. Think about all the miracles God did for his people by how he used the earth. Think about it, church. You think about the land of Egypt on which God's people toiled for so many years. But all of a sudden that land realizes that God's people are now absent. They've been uh, set free from the bondage of the Egyptians. If we were to ask that land, land, what happened? The land would say, oh, God was mighty, true, and faithful to his people. He led his people out of bondage. If we were to interview the Red Sea and we were to ask the Red Sea as God basically asks for the mountains and asks for the hills to testify against, uh, against him, if we were to ask the Red Sea about the goodness of God, the Red Sea would say, oh, I remember that day when, when I parted 
on both sides and became dry right down the middle. And then that, that crazy army of Egyptians, I crushed underneath my waters. Oh, I remember when God did that. If we were to ask the Jordan River, Jordan River, has God been anything but good to his people? The Jordan River would respond, oh, I remember that day when I suddenly became dry and Israel passed through me and they took 12 stones out of my river. I'm still waiting on those stones. <laughs> They're not coming back. The Jordan River, river would recall the goodness and love of God to his people. If we were to ask the sun about the day it stood still and God literally stopped time in order for his people to have the victory against the enemy, the sun would say, oh yes, I remember that day. There's never really been a day like that in all of my existence. God, my maker, was very good, very loving, very merciful to his people. If we were to ask that rock that gushed out water, very impossible for that to do, that rock would say, that was a crazy experience, but God met the needs of his people by giving them water. Oh, I remember the goodness of God and how he treated his people. You see, church, we don't have any reason to believe that the earth would disagree with God. The earth is not going to lie about the goodness of God. You see, the Lord contends that he has been nothing but fair and kind to his people while man mistreated them in the past. The Bible clearly tells us in verses 1 through 5 that he delivered them from a foreign land. He delivered them from slavery. He delivered them out of situations that they weren't even aware of. Have you ever, like, gone by a car and you didn't realize that it was almost going to hit you before you got by it? You didn't even realize what happened and what God saved you from? Same thing with God's people. There are so many things that God prevented from happening to his people, and he prevented it. He was loving to his people. The Lord also used godly people in leadership to guide them in his will. He names here, he names Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. He names these people that God so graciously provided to guide them through these difficult days. You see, the evidence of God's goodness was overwhelming. And they could not deny it in this passage. You cannot deny the overwhelming love and goodness of God to you. But why did God raise his own defense? Why did God not raise a defense for the people who were mistreated? Why did God raise his own defense? Because the ultimate problem, church, of his people was that they forgot the heart with which he treated them. That was their ultimate problem. Although God is not taking their sinful actions lightly, he is not, church. He is, in fact, placing a stronger em emphasis on their heart failure. Because their heart failure was the problem and was the cause for their sinful actions. He's not downplaying how they treated them, but God is getting to the heart of the matter. Amen. He's talking about their heart failure. Notice what God says at the end of verse 5, church. He says, know the righteousness of the Lord. 
You see, church, knowing, realizing, remembering God's goodness is vital because a failure to do so will have an an impact on how we live out our lives before others. In other words, our sinful actions flow out of a heart failure to know and remember God. Every problem that you have in your home, every problem you have in your private life, Every problem you have with other people out on the job is a heart problem of yours. The Bible says, and we know these verses, Proverbs 4.23, keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it, out of it, are the issues of life. Jesus said in Mark chapter 7, for from within, out of the heart of men proceed. Ready? Evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, of which they were guilty, covetousness, wickedness, which they were guilty of, deceit, lasciviousness, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, of which they were guilty, foolishness. All these, church, all these come from within and defile a man, Jesus says. You see, God's people... They were tolerating the unfair, the unjust treatment of the wealthy toward the poor of the land because they were not mindful, they were not heartful of God's goodness to them. They tolerated the misbehavior. They tolerated the sin because they were not full of who God was. They were not knowing, they were not remembering, they were not realizing the goodness of God to them. Their thinking eventually affected the way that they lived before others. Their thinking eventually affected the way that they lived before others. Their very own siblings in the Lord. How was God mistreated? Why did God raise his own defense? How was God mistreated? Well, just remember, church, Christianity 101, sin is anything we say think or do that is contrary to who God is. And God is holy and God is love. Who or what was God toward his people? He was just. That means he was fair. He was merciful. That means he was loving in his treatment of his people. When they didn't deserve it, when they were not good, when they were not right, when they had not earned it, God was still fair, God was still merciful, and he was still faithful to walk with them despite their failures. In other words, God was love. God was sincere, authentic, true to his people. So by the time we get to verse 6, God's people are guilty. And they know it. The evidence of God's goodness toward them is inescapable. The evidence of their unfair, unloving, and proud actions toward the poor is also inescapable. They can't get past the evidence of their actions, of their heart. God is witness. The earth is witness. The poor are witnesses to this behavior, and so is their very own conscience. In other words, we can say tonight that God's people in the book of Micah were convicted. They were convicted. What does that mean? They were convinced of their error. 
They believed God's man. In other words, they believed God. They were convicted. They were convinced. They were persuaded that they were wrong and God was right. Convicted. We know conviction. How do you put it into words? That's a way, but we know how it feels. It is when we are convinced that we are wrong. We're convinced that something is true. They're convicted at this point. Their behavior, church, was not a reflection of how God treated them in their poor estate. You see, church, God's commands help us live lives that look like him. God's commands help us live lives that look like him. But friend, here's the thing. Here's what we need to know. We need to love God's commandments. We need to desire God. We need not just follow them out of duty. We ought to have them out, be the outflow of our lives because we love him. His fairness and his mercy and love and his faithfulness describe him. But in, God, the, in their conviction in our passage, in their conviction, the people of God are now wondering, catch this, what they can do to make up for their sinful actions. They're wondering, what can we do now? We've all been here, but we, we have, and when she starts to speak, I'll have a child like this, but... Uh, we've, we know that child and we've been there before when they're mistreating another child or they're being mean or they're being selfish and the eyes of an adult, of an adult catch their eyes and they're convicted. They know that the adult saw the wrong or the sin or the selfishness that they committed. And what is that word that comes out of their mouth? Sorry. And so what they're expecting is they're trying to escape those eyes. They're trying to be relieved of the conviction. But let me ask you, does that mere word, just saying sorry, actually change a child's heart? Does it change the heart of the child? It doesn't. You think about um, an irresponsible high school student who, who knows that he can make up his schoolwork at the end of the semester after he skips it all, and if he just makes up the work in the last two weeks, he'll get a passing grade and he'll move forward. But does that mean he's a sincere, devoted, faithful student just because he makes up the work and he gets it done just in time? No. Does that change his heart? It doesn't. Would suddenly doing good satisfy the controversy that God has with his people? Would doing godliness suddenly make God feel better? Was God ultimately requiring them to say and to do the right things all of a sudden? Is that what God was requiring? You've done wrong, now do right. Just, just do better. Was that what God was requiring them to do in their guilt and in their conviction? Doing good does not please God when our heart condition is not pleasing to God. Doing good does not please God when our heart condition is not pleasing to God. Notice they say in verse 6, Wherewith shall I come before the Lord? Verse 7, Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? You see, in their conviction, Israel asked if taking religious action 
would please God in the controversy that he had with their sinful actions. Notice their response in verses 6 and 7 again. When they're convicted, when, when they are convinced of the truth that they are wrong and God is right, they say, shall I come before him with burnt offerings? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? How about 10,000 rivers of oil? Or the drastic, or the drastic offer of giving my firstborn the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. Notice they say, church, um, at the end of verse 7, they say the word soul, the very last word. And so what this indicates to me is that they had an idea that sin took over first within, then took over outwardly. They, they had an idea. They, they, they had a clue of where God was getting at, but their natural response was, what is the religious action that I can take now? What can I do better? You see, we, in the realm of the Christian life, we subconsciously consider the religious actions we can take to ease conviction over sin. And I think we just do this by the nature of the fallen nature. You think of Adam, when he sinned, he hid. You think of people who have sinned throughout Scripture, and they tried to make it right by cleaning up the outside, by making themselves feel a little bit better about themselves. And we, so we ask the questions, what do I need to do better? What do I need to do more of? Is there something monumental I can do to please God in my guilt? You see, like God's people then, the problem of God's people today is not primarily a failure to do, but rather a failure to be authentic. Amen. We don't have problems doing. You're doing something tonight. You're here. Good job. That's not hard to do. We don't have as much of a problem uh, uh, with doing than we have being authentic. Because the failure of being authentic is directly connected to a failure to repent. To get back to God. We may do godliness while hiding undealt with sin. We may use godly speech, but have an inner spirit of bitterness and pride. We may be serving in a ministry while despising the fact that we have to love others. And that's all in the heart. But that's not what we see. And so we smile at you and say, it's good to see you. But God knows What's going on? Another problem with just doing good is that we can use it to temporarily, temporarily masquerade the true guilt of our hearts. The child says, I'm sorry, just to kind of skip out on a punishment and we fall for it. We, very good, son. Very good, daughter. You said the right word. All better now. That student tries to make up that schoolwork, but we know he's not a devoted, faithful student of integrity. We know that that's not true. You see, Christians don't struggle so much with doing godliness as much as they do with being godly. Christians, we don't struggle too much with doing. We struggle more with actually being real, being authentic in the eyes of God. 
All our doings are nothing more than shallow external uh, religious conformities that do not please God if our hearts are not right with God. Welcome to Wednesday night church. I'm going to say it again because you can't forget this. And this is what Micah was trying to communicate to God's people. All our doings are nothing more than shallow external religious conformities that do not please God if, if our hearts are not right with God. You see, doing right, going through the motions with a heart that is not right will never be pleasing to the Lord. Never. That's religion. That's our own effort. So, what does God require of you? What will please the Lord? Notice at the beginning, beginning of verse 7, the people ask in their conviction, will the Lord be pleased? They know. They're asking the question that somewhere, somehow, God now has to be pleased, but they're asking if getting back to ministry, getting back to the motions, getting back to, to, to uh, giving a tithe and bringing, uh, bringing an offering is what is going to eventually appease and satisfy God and his, his problem with his people. They say, will the Lord be pleased? They, they know that there's something missing through that question. What does God require of you? What will please the Lord in your conviction? God requires us to allow what we know about him to transform our hearts. Amen. That's what God requires that we would repent of the sin and simply get back into a relationship with God, that we would not do what we do out of, out of, out of uh, duty, but that we would do what we do out of authenticity, out of a real genuine love for God and for people. Amen. Letting what you know about God to transform your heart requires repentance. It requires a return to God, not a return to doing good, not necessarily a return to checking off the boxes of ministry, not necessarily a return to looking appropriate on the outside, although we appreciate that and, and God does, but that is not the primary thing that God is asking us for when we are convicted of sin. Letting his heart Transform our hearts requires returning to God. God has revealed to us, his people, what he, required of, what he requires of us through his very own character. Notice with me in verse number eight. Let's think about verses six and seven for a second more, please. They say, is this what we should do? Should we just get back to church? Should we just get back to tithing? Should we just get back to not watching the wrong movies? And Micah just has to stop them in verse number eight. And it's as if he says, no. God hath showed you through his own character what he requires of you. In other words, Micah's saying, get back to knowing God. Amen. Notice verse 8. He hath showed thee. Referring to God. He hath showed you his people. 
What, O oh man, what is good and what doth the Lord require of thee? But to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. That was God's heart toward them. He was nothing but good to his people. He was nothing but merciful and fair to his people. Why? Because he had to? No, because he desired relationship. He loved them. He wanted what was best for them. And he wanted them to bring him glory. Because that's who God is at his heart. He loves you. And he wants you to turn from the sin and primarily come back to him. You cannot please God unless you are changed from the inside out. Far too long we think we're going to be okay if we just polish the outside, put a smile on our faces. It's back there. You cannot please God unless you are changed from the inside out. Authentic godliness flows out of a heart that is directly influenced by God's heart. So let me ask you this. And you answer this question between you and God. Is thy heart right with God? Is thy heart, the inner man, your soul, is it right with God? You see, God wants you to treat people right, to love others, and to walk with him, not to relieve yourself of conviction, but because you love God. So often what we do is, we, when we sin, here's what we do. Man. I can't believe I, I, I did that or said that. What do I do? Uh, I don't like the way this feels. Sorry, God. I gotta get ready for church. Put my shoes on, look good, study the Sunday school lesson, sing in the choir this morning. Man, that'll, that'll make me feel a little better. God, I know you're there. Isn't that what we do sometimes? Maybe some of you, it's often. We bypass God. We know we're wrong. We're convicted. We're convinced of it over here. We know it. Our response shows that we're wrong, but we totally bypass repentance. We bypass coming back into the fellowship of God, and we go all the way over to religious obligation and we try to serve God with, with blood on our hands, with dirt on our hands, with sin on our hands, and we bypass the altar. I'm not necessarily talking about this one, although I promote it. I'm talking about the presence of God. Repentance, a broken heart, a contrite spirit. We bypass it and we go there. I'm just going to go to church. And you should. You, that's good. Be faithful. But that is not God's primary concern. Because if you bypass him when you're wrong, you're disingenuous over here. You're not real. Amen. Until you get there, God, repent. You think of a vol volcano. 
Underneath the surface of a volcano is the, the focus and then the epicenter. Or rather, it's the epicenter than the focus, whatever. I'm blessed to even know this much of what I'm even saying. I taught sixth grade science for two years, whatever. Right underneath the volcano is the epicenter. The volcano doesn't just erupt because it's mad. I'm like, oh, whoa, what's wrong with that? No, there's pressure underneath the surface that we can't see with the naked eye. There's something boiling underneath first where the focus is. You know, whatever you're focused on, whatever your heart is set on, friend, that is eventually going to come out for all of us to see. You wonder why you're going from there to there, all the way back there again and there to there because you're not focused on God. You haven't repented. You haven't come to him. You've said sorry, but that's not brokenness. That's not a contrite spirit. God is concerned about the heart's response to him. We are changed from the inside out. Is your heart godly? The question is not, do you look or sound godly? The question is not, are you leading a Bible study group? Do you tell sinners about Christ? Do you sing specials in church? The question is not, do you dress like a Christian? Do you have manners? Do you have your devotion so you can win a prize? Are you memorizing verses just to one-up the other child? All of these areas are fine and good and biblical, but the question is not, do you bring burnt offerings and thousands of rams and rivers of oil? That's not the question, church. That has not been the question over the last few weeks. And I'm convinced, church, that God wants to do a, a divine work at Canaan Baptist Church. And he's trying to put the final nails in the coffin of your life. And he's trying to move us forward in authentic divine revival. But some of you are still not coming to God and being broken. The question is, is your heart right with God if God didn't care about your heart, he would just leave you in your Catholicism, in your Islam, in your humanism, and just say, let's let the good outweigh the bad, shall we? No, he's concerned about the real you. We notice in Psalm 51, and I'm almost finished. I shouldn't have to say that. David's prayer of brokenness and confession and repentance in Psalm 51. You don't have to turn there. But the Bible says here, in verses 17 through 19, David says to God, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, thou wilt not despise. Do good in thy good pleasure unto Zion. Build thou the walls of Jerusalem. Then shalt thou be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then shall they offer bullocks upon the altar. Notice David's pattern. He was not cutting corners on getting his life right with the Lord. First, David dealt with his heart by repenting to God. David was then restored to God, rebuilt out the walls of Jerusalem. And we know the rest of the prayer before these verses. And then David returned to ministry for God. Friend, God wants you to serve him, but he does not want you to serve him as, as a wall of protection about who you really are. God wants serving him to be the natural outflow of having 
been with him in repentance. God wants that. But we go from, oh, man, I'm convicted. I'm wrong. Sorry, God. And then, hey, everybody, I'm doing all right. The Bible truth is, if your heart is not right with God, then you are not right at all. That's why we need to continue to ask, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me. If you preach, if you can explain the deep truths of the Bible, if you believe everything about the Bible, if you, if you feed the poor daily and sometimes give them the very coat off your back, it is not authentically godly if your heart is not godly. So how can I be authentically godly? How, then? How can I be real? You will be godly when you walk with God. You say that? That's it? You will be godly when you walk with God. He says at the end of verse 8, and to walk humbly with thy God. You will be godly as you look unto Jesus. When we look at Hebrews chapter 12, and we see verse 1, and it says, Wherefore, seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, referring to Hebrews chapter 11, I think sometimes we look at these men and women of faith who obeyed God, and we think, wow, man, they, they, just, they just did great. They just, they just, you know, they just followed. They, they just did great. And I think sometimes when we hear about preachers and modern-day missionaries and, and pastors and people of that nature, we just assume that if we carry our Bible just like they do, if we just sing as loud as they do, if we just uh, comb our hair the right way, we have the modest attire on, that we're going to be godly. No. The Bible says we see these witnesses, but did they just please God just because they put on the right stuff, they listened to the right stuff, they said the right things? No. They had failures. The Bible says we see them, but then God calls us to lay aside every weight in the sin that so easily besets us so that we might run with patience the race that is set before us. You think Abraham and Moses and Noah did what they did? But for the glory of God with sin in their life? No way. The stuff they went through was hard. It was tempting. Tempting them to quit. They couldn't run these races, their race of faith with this stuff in their lives, and neither can you. But that's what many of you are still trying to do. You're not broken. But how do we begin to run our race with patience and with joy? Verse 2 of Hebrews 12. Looking unto Jesus. Getting back to him. Repentance. Brokenness. Getting back into a restored relationship with him. We see the witnesses. We lay aside our sin. But we look at. We stare at. We dwell with Jesus. 
God, Christ is the one that God wants us to be like. We can't fake Jesus. Can't fake it. Because he knows. We can fool others, but not the Lord. You see, godliness begins when you first agree with him about the sinfulness of your heart, the arrogance, the pride, the rebellion, the lust, the fornication, the unfaithfulness in your relationship with the Lord. You see, Israel needed to repent, and that's what Micah was calling them to. They needed to repent. They needed to return to God rather than trying to pretend their godliness. The wise Christian here tonight will respond with repentance. Verse 9 of Micah 6, The Lord's voice crieth to the city, crieth to the church, crieth to his people, and the man of wisdom will see thy name. Hear ye the rod, and who hath appointed it? Is your heart right with God. If your heart is right, you will want to serve the Lord. Your actions will be right. But pleasing and honoring God must go to the heart. I'm thankful for the scripture memory process that we're going to begin with the young people in our church. But parents... You better make sure those verses go to their heart, Amen. not to their head. I remember being a little kid in Awana, going way back now. And there'd be like this kid who could quote like all of John chapter 3. He had a stupid little bow tie on. And I was like, man, I really need to devote myself. I mean, blah, 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 blah. I don't think he's been in church for like 10 years. It didn't go to his heart. Went to his head. Look what I can do. I skipped a grade. Who cares if it doesn't go to your heart? Amen. It must go to their heart so that they would love the Lord with their hearts. Amen. So that they are authentic. So that they are genuine. So that Christ is flowing through them. Not out of obligation. Not out of uh, religious duty. But because they love the Lord and he is in their epicenter. And he is their focus. And he just comes from the inside out. That's what God requires of you, of me. Godly is what you will be when your heart is focused on who God is. Let's stand for prayer, please. With your head bowed.